Podcast. It's a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and we're talking about in the world of books and reading. Today's Thursday, February 9th, 2023. I'm Jeff O'Neill, here with Rebecca Shinsky. Rebecca, I'm recording from my third most desirable podcast location today because, okay. um, as I was just commiserating with you about, it has been um, stomach flu week here at the uh, O'Neill household. It's been a a rolling storm of unimaginable disgustingness, and uh, we've got some people um, around, uh, and I daren't go into the office uh, where mm-hmm. I have one p- podcasting set up um, because I'm a human being that feels for the well-being of others, and I can't, I can't bring my vector there. I've got you someone cannot. in my secondary location, um, so I'm in my tertiary location today, and I'd say in a lot of ways I'm in my tertiary location today, Rebecca. <laughs> I am out of sorts. Just spiritually tertiary is where we are. Yeah, it's just, so I'm going to do the best I can today with what I've got. You know. Um, might be a little on the short side today, to be yeah. honest with you, but we'll see. we got some stuff to talk about. It's been a pretty light news week. You didn't miss much mm. while you were dealing with your, you know, rolling storm of just, you know, yes. intestinal distress in your Filth. household. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm in my same as always podcasting location. I am not at my parents' house podcasting with my mic attached to a mason jar. So we're like averaging out. Okay, I think. (laughs) That's what matters, right? Just average it all out. One of us is all right. That's why there's two of us here. It's going to be okay. The nice thing about podcasting, I must say, you can do it in the most slovenly attire (laughs) with the most haggard visage that one can imagine. And if anything, being a little sick kind of helps the timbre of your voice, I find. Um, You can get a little raspier and lower, which can be pleasant in its own way. So very grateful that I get to do this and to be here. (laughs) That's the attitude I'm bringing today. Oh, yeah. Your usually sunny disposition. (laughs) (laughs) And if you would like to come work with this disposition, we've got some gigs you can apply (laughs) Hell of a segue, O'Neill. That's the way you do it. Uh, there's a link in the show notes. The show notes are always at bookriot.com slash listen. There's a couple of positions we're looking for. One on the ad up side, um, help us traffic, keep track of the ads that we do and the podcast newsletters, the site and elsewhere. And then a dev, a full stack web engineer, um, help us with the front of the sites and the back of the house stuff that we do technology wise. Um, not going to go into too much more of it there. If that sounds like something you or someone you know would be interested in, check it out. I myself am feeling about the about the least attractive person in the world today, but it is Valentine's Day time coming up. And if you um, have someone in your life that might be a good candidate to get TBR, which is our tailored book recommendation service, um, you can go check that out. There's a hardcover level where they get the actual physical print books in the mail. They can fill out the kind of stuff they want. They get actual recommendations from humans, not chatbots, Rebecca, not Not chatbots, human beings. Not yet. Uh, I don't think for a while. This is going to be very hard. This is actually a very hard thing. (laughs) This is very hard Um, to do well. Yeah. It's very hard to do well. Uh, And then there's a digital only. So if you're like, you know what, I'm going to get my books or I'm going to get my books. Maybe I don't want all those, but I'd love to see the recommendations and make them part of your upcoming reading rotation, go check it out. Link in the show notes there. Um, also, can just go to mytbr.co. I've got some. It's been a. It's been a, it's a slower week. I've got some feedback that maybe we can make some hay out of. Sure. Um, but before we do all that, let's uh, take our first sponsor break. <laughs> 
Today's episode is brought to you by Revel Fiction and Double Take, the first book in a breathtaking new series from Lynette Eason. Detective James Cross has been honorably discharged from the Army Criminal Investigation Division due to wounds sustained. Meanwhile, physician assistant Lainey Jackson is going through some things. She's 18 months out from an attempted murder perpetrated by her ex, which ended when she managed to grab the weapon and shoot him. When he appears to have survived and is back to finish the job he started, Lainey insists it's not possible. But someone is trying to kill her and she does keep seeing his face. So Lainey and James must work together to find out who exactly is after her and why he wants her dead and failure is not an option. Pick up Double Take by Lynette Eason for tight and fast paced writing. U.S. Today bestselling author Lynette Eason will leave you breathless with this new book. It's the first in a brand new series. Thanks again to Revel Fiction and Double Take, the first book in a breathtaking new series from Lynette Eason for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by National Geographic Books. The Cave is the incredible memoir of Imani Balur, a young doctor and activist who ran an underground hospital in Damascus, humanizing the enduring crisis in Syria. The only woman to have ever run a wartime hospital in Syria, she saved many from the atrocities of war while having to face the patriarchal conservatism around her. Amani Balor is a game changer. Listen, she will be remembered as one of history's greatest. She's a passionately committed humanitarian, and she is determined to help others escape the horrors that she survived. Make sure to pick up the memoir, The Cave by Amani Balor and Rania Abuzaid for a memoir that expands on the 2019 Oscar-nominated film by the same name, which documents her experience running the hospital, shielding children from horrific sarin attack, losing colleagues, trying to employ more women in the hospital, and eventually leaving and becoming a refugee. So make sure to read about this amazing woman. And thanks again to National Geographic Books for sponsoring this episode. A couple birdies on the 35-hour versus 40-hour work week. I guess I've never really put this together, but some people were saying that um, if you work nine to five with a lunch break for an hour, that's 35 hours. And my response to that was, duh, to me. (laughs) Um, Do you feel as dumb as I do about that right now? Yes, and I don't feel bad about it because I've worked from home for like 14 years. So what is a lunch break anyway? Like I just live my life and sometimes I eat at my desk and sometimes I go somewhere. It's just not the way taking like scheduled breaks is a thing that I have Mm -hmm. the luxury of not having to think about. Um, But that makes total sense. (laughs) And I guess I never, I, I guess I thought of 40 hours as being, eight to five with a lunch break, but I guess you don't have to work over your salad at your desk if you don't yeah. want to. That's your choice that you seen... make to have the sad desk salad, but in a lot of places, you don't have to do that. You get the hour. Right. Yeah. Maybe pre-COVID and like before workplace stuff really started shifting, I had seen some standard like practices around job listings that were like, you know, nine to six with a one hour lunch break. So you have, mm-hmm. you you actually are working 40 hours mm-hmm. and you're at your office, I guess then for 45 um, or office adjacent for 45. This is the, it's so obvious that I do feel like, oh, right, yes, lunch breaks, that's a thing. <laughs> Thank you for enlightening us, people who go to offices yeah. and know, know things the, the, about that. Keep track of their time in a responsible right. way. Um, take your take your break if you get it. That's what I'm saying. If you got the yes. break, use it. Um, had someone email in the continuing follow-on, blowback <laughs> response to my mini McCarthy 
I'm going to call it a melt up. It wasn't a meltdown. Right? I like that. It, yeah. it was a melt up. Yeah. It was happy. Um, mm-hmm. s- someone suggested, you know, one place you can go is there's active discussions of both Stella Maris and the passenger on Reddit, mm. which I will not do. But if you are interested in looking at that, I think the email was called um, The Rabbit Hole with McCarthy. I've been on the internet long enough, Rebecca. This is not my first uh, turnaround, the digital sun, as it were. One thing I know about the Reddit rabbit holes is that that is a warren. And here's the thing. The, even if you catch a rabbit down there, you're still down in the rabbit hole. You hear what I'm saying? I do. I hear you. I feel the same way. Like, I very much am yeah. glad that Reddit exists as a resource for people who want a resource like Reddit. It is not a resource I am going to use for anything other than like, how is the new restaurant in my town? And even that is often very fraught. <laughs> so. But this is sort of passing it on to those of you who also emailed back. Like, I want to do something with this. There's a bit of uh, be careful out there <laughs> with this, I would say. But there are, it looks like I, I did a very like kind of, I took my glasses off so I couldn't quite see it and read it mm. directly, you know, kind of protecting myself. Um, but there seems to be vibrant discussions and they're there for you. Um, you can find it. I'm not going to put a link in the show notes because I don't want to for this. I do appreciate this this reader passing this on and thinking yes. of me and thinking of your other fellow listeners out there. I do forget that that is actually a pretty vibrant community for discussions. And there's um, in the older days, the Reddit book community, something we kind of paid attention to as sources of news and kinds of things. I haven't been back there um, in a while. And you know, in the day in the day of social media and the TikTok and the viral algorithmic derived video. I have to say, there's something sort of old-fashioned about a message board like Reddit, yeah. which is essentially what it is. And I can see it actually being a more, I don't know, satisfying mode of discourse because it actually has a little bit of call and response in, 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 a, in sure. a particular way that you yeah, might expect the, in a more conversational milieu. The like, you know, 2008, 2010-ish heyday of book blogging had a lot of that yeah. as well, where com- the comment sections were active and robust and mostly pretty pleasant places to be, where people were just blogging reviews of the books that they had read lately. And the same galleys were getting sent to a lot of the book bloggers. So people were reading them at the mm-hmm. same time. So we were sort of having like blogosphere wide book clubs about particular titles. That was really fun. And since that has decreased, I feel like one of the primary reasons that I host a podcast about books and reading is so that I can talk about the things that I read with someone who's yeah. not going to take me into a rabbit hole I don't want to go into. <laughs> well, and, you know, I think I missed that about the old days of book blogging, something we've talked about. And mm-hmm. one of the reasons we have a book discussion here from time to time is we like doing it. And I think it's an interesting place if people want to go there. The problem is, you know, to a first approximation, zero of the people you know have read the book. And maybe that's right. a little bit bigger if you're hosting a book podcast. One of the things I remember I like I remember really liking about your old podcast in the old days of Book Rages, it was a, a conversation show, right? You guys mm-hmm. were really talking about the books together and it had that sort of feeling of, you know, a, a broadcast book club, um, for lack of a better term. The problem with that is if as a listener, then you got to read the book or the conversation itself has to be sufficiently interesting to listen to without having read and probably never reading the book. And I'm still not sure how to do that. Um, it is, but I don't know. There's something there. There's something yeah, it's there. an I'm ongoing sure challenge. It, like the way that we had set Book Rageous up was usually like the top of the show was 
themes on something, you know, Mm -hmm. some theme. And then we would all talk about books related to that theme and the bottom half, or maybe it was reversed. It's been a long time since that podcast existed was what are we each reading now? And that it worked in a lot of the same ways as our show works and that the blogosphere used to work where like, if one of us liked something, we knew each other's tastes well enough to be like, Oh, I'll probably like that too. And so then it would make its way back into conversation repeatedly and we could Mm -hmm. revisit stuff and come back around coming up with, themes to keep a thing like that going is really challenging. Like I I think about it a lot when every year when our editorial team is coming up with challenges for the read harder challenge, like you come up with Mm -hmm. 24 things related to books that people have to do. And the first couple of years, there's a lot of low hanging fruit. But when you're on like year 12, (laughs) like how highly specific do these themes have to get so that we aren't just repeating ourselves? That was one of one of the challenges with keeping book rate just going as the way that it was. But I did really value getting to show up to a conversation with people who I, you know, had talked to for a billion hours and we could, you know, really understand each other's take on Mm -hmm. books and then have listeners invited into it. I will say as a podcast listener, that's not a conversation. Like, it's so interesting. Mm -hmm. I love making this kind of content, but that's not the type of content I consume. I tend to consume content about like TV shows that I've watched or that I'm going to watch. And if I have like not read a nonfiction book, I will listen to an interview with that author or something about it. But other people's book clubs are like not a thing that I feel the desire to listen in on, which I don't know. That's just my, probably my idiosyncratic use case for it. But I do, I think we're all still trying to solve that problem. And you can even see like lots of money being thrown to some of the like startups in the book space who are trying to figure Mm -hmm. out what, what, can you even recreate that book clubby feeling on the internet? How do you do it? Um, the best approximations that I've seen are still not satisfying, really, for what mm-hmm. it is like to sit down with other people that you see regularly and that you're all going through a reading experience together. It's a tricky question. I think you have to do it something like um, you're the member of the book club that shows up and they haven't read the book. <laughs> And you still enjoy being there, like you enjoy the hang. That's one thing we know about, yes, you know, yeah. unscripted, essentially podcasts. You enjoy the hang. Problem with that is, if if a lot of people haven't read the book, then it becomes very difficult. And in other cultural products, I'm thinking of movies and TV shows, especially because they're ascendant in the the podcasting discourse. And like I, th- I think online, um, really are those are the two places where there's a lot of attention, like sort of the last of us right now. Mm-hmm. Part of listening to someone break down last of us episodes or last of us, the show itself, even if you haven't watched it is you want to know what the deal with that thing is because it's out yeah. there. It's vanishingly rare in the world of books that something is big enough to know what the deal is with. So we could maybe do, could we do three episodes a year that what's the deal with this book that people might just want to know something about? Like, maybe that might be kind of a fun thing to track just to see like i think right now we could do spare we could have done an episode on spare just to be like what's the deal with spare we could have done that that's not what we do but that's how we ended up book clubbing where the crawdads sing and also the colleen hoover book is what's up with this like it it was big enough then and to go back that's how i ended up reading 50 shades of gray and before that why Mm -hmm. i read twilight and read and talked about those on the internet that like yeah what this thing is big enough that it's outside of book culture it's just in culture culture what's up with it what should we know about it what's the conversation and there are just so many more books than tv shows or movies in a given year it's really hard for any of them to break out and be 
bigger and then the markets for tv shows and movies are just bigger um than they are for publishing so i think all of that combines into it's just much harder to like you know gather attention and conversation around any particular title Um, Mm -hmm. but it's one of the I'm, i'm in the middle of a Building a Second Brain by Tiago Forte, which I'll talk about a little more in Frontlist Foyer. I know you read it and liked it, but I just hit a section where he talks about like staying in touch with what your favorite 10 to 12 questions as a person are Mm -hmm. and the things you're going to come back to and work on and revisit and just keep like gnawing at. And in our work, definitely, how do book clubs (laughs) is one of those. Yeah, it's true. Um, well, as a segue into some other listener feedback, so I was in Powell's yesterday. Um, no, yeah, last night in one of the few calm moments of the last uh, <laughs> seven days because um, I was picking up the new Salman Rushdie, Victory City. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was thinking to myself, but that's like, this is Salman Rushdie. The new book is out. It's supposed to be pretty good. Yeah. And he was in the news recently for a horrific attack. So he's front of mind as as much as any writer can be front of mind. And I was like, if we did a What's the Deal with Victory City episode, I just couldn't figure out how that would be interesting to other people. Like we would probably, we usually have a good time talking about whatever we're going to pick, whether it's we have a good time doing crawdads or fried green tomatoes or Kazuisho Goro or English patient or whatever. I always enjoy the conversations ourselves. That's different than making something other people are really going to feel compelled by. And even Victory City. Now, maybe there, and I think I might be tipping the hand to some of the other things we've been working on in the background. Maybe mm-hmm. a what's the deal with Salman Rushdie is interesting. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Is what's the deal with Victory City interesting? Well, maybe for 10 or 15 minutes. But it's hard to think of an equivalent where like, I mean, that's more of the equivalent of like Steven Spielberg's new movie, right? Like The Fableman's coming out, where you mm-hmm. you know people know Spielberg and the movie's accessible, and even if they're not going to see it, it's going to be part of the Oscars, which is whole race. There's just nothing really equivalent. I find it very, very hard to do. And so as much as I am um, tremulous about hitting um, the URL for a little site called Reddit, I do still get the value yeah, of that because it's all, it scratches an itch that's very hard to get scratched. Um, anywhere else. I picked up another book at the uh, at the bookstore last night. It's rare that I do this. In fact, I can't remember ever doing this before. I got an email. I don't have affirmative consent to use the name, so I'm sorry mm-hmm. if, if you were hoping that your name or whatever recently in response to my kind of query about, we have, en- we have plenty of good books. It's the books that blow your hair back. I guess that's a Goodwill Hunting reference, I think, a blow your hair back. Um, yeah. That that's kind of what we're always hunting for. And this came as a recommendation. A book is called The English Understand Wool by the great Helen DeWitt, which I had him on my radar for last year. And this person said it was ripping through um, their independent bookstore, much like this uh, norovirus ripped through my household. (laughs) Um, And she couldn't stop thinking about it. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to go take a look at it. And it's this weird-ass little book. Um, It's 68 pages. It's... It's what is that? It's not even in novella. It's from this line called storybook, and they're uh-huh. meant to be one sit reads. So somewhere between a long short story, I guess, and a novella, sixty eight pages. You could do it in. I'll read that in an hour. I haven't cracked it open yet. Um, but thank you for that recommendation, and I was in the right mood. And that's that's how much I want this kind of recommendation. Is that I will take an unsolicited or semi-solicited recommendation for, I think this person has written to us before, so I, I, okay. I did have a little bit of sense that they were, you know, they work at any bookstore. But here, here's the real thing. This is all preamble to the great moment, which is I bought the book, 
And the 20 something hip bookseller was like, oh, these are such a cool series. This is so mm. rad that you're buying this. And Rebecca, let me tell you, as a 44 year old with my, <laughs> oh, my son in tow, who had, who had been, you know, let's say dehydrated for the better part of the previous 72 hours, I really appreciated that. Mm-hmm. That's it was a worth the moment. $18 cover price for the 68 page. I was just Googling as <sighs> you mentioned this title because I love Helen DeWitt, but I had not encountered yes. this seventeen ninety five hardcover list price for sixty four pages. I don't know what you do. Um, I'm, I'm serious about this because I bought um, the, the Louise Glick book, Mary, Mary Golden Rose, which is mm-hmm. somehow less. Th- it's a it's a sixty four pages, but it's like a quarto sheet. It's like a half the size of this book. <laughs> <laughs> um, on the other hand, I got my $15 out of that. If this yeah. is good, it'll be worth 18 bucks. But there was just something about... Well, the Rushdie itself was 28 And that's a substantial, you know, this is... Is it Random House or Doubleday? I can't remember. It doesn't They're kind of the same, right? It's, it's the same yeah. prestigious. It's really good stock, beautiful cover design. Feels like a substantial book. And I'm lucky in the position where $18, I can buy that kind of on a whim. I did have a blanche about it, but I, what are they supposed to charge? Five? They can't charge five. Yeah, There's no it's business It's an impossible there. situation. I wish that there were some sort of like dynamic pricing for books, but based on like the court of rightness enjoyment scale. Oh. Like, like there's a baseline that you've got to pay. This is not even a half-baked yeah. idea. This is like an eighth-baked because I'm having it live. That like, mm-hmm. like there's a base where you have to pay at least $10 for this 64-page hardcover or whatever. And then based on how much you enjoy it, and you have to tell the truth about that, you pay up to another, whatever, eight or ten <laughs> to get you there. Ex post facto, you're like, I'm going to kick in eight bucks. I'm sure that's that'll be a sound business. I'm sure that'll work. <laughs> Look, I don't know how this actually works, but this is the thing I want to exist in a different kind of universe. This is like dynamic about, I, I, enjoyment-based pricing. To put a checker on a checker, what if it was more like tipping, right? First, you have to mm. need some digital. Like you get your lift ride, you pay for your yeah. lift, and you could decide after the fact how much to tip. I like it. You know, and it's, you could do say, you know, uh, charge me 12 bucks, but I'll kick back another two after the fact for good service. I, I don't know that anyone would do that. How do you keep track of that? A completely different thing, but I did. I did look at. It. I'm like, okay, I guess I'm doing this now. Um, and certainly, after I got the compliment, I wasn't going to return it right there and balk <laughs> at the uh, 18. I, you know uh, what? That was worth it just to be called cool in front of your kid. Yeah, I wasn't being called. It is so cool. I guess the transaction was cool, but just the proximity to the word cool. Yeah, by the like transitive a cold property, glass of, of water in hell. Mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. So there's my little story there. The English understand will. I will read it at some point in the next few days and uh, report yeah. back next week. Um, some other updates. Um, the HarperCollins union out there doing work for their peers in publishing right now. Macmillan is raising the base mm-hmm. pay to 47.5, effective April 1st. Um, I guess also then putting HarperCollins in a bind because their last offer was 46.5 or something like that. But it's interesting to see the rising tide or the threat of a rising tide lifting all boats. I'm in a mixed maritime metaphor here, but you get the idea. (laughs) Um, So continue to watch that. Really no movement I've seen this week out of the union talks. No. Um, But it does lead us into uh, Jen Northington, uh, speaking of Book Rageous and and Book Riot, wrote a piece for us called What is Happening with Publishing, which is, I don't know, 
what is the work she's trying to do here? Is she trying to, I think in a lot of ways, she's trying to understand it herself, which is what I really like when Jen does something like this, because she's trying to think through a lot of things herself, which I think is a useful exercise for for other readers. There's anything here with Jen did other than we want to shout this out and link to it that people go check it out, the kind of a yeah, holistic I think look. it's just um, a really nice jumped out to you? synthesis of what are the things that are going on and are like economic situations and layoffs in publishing related to macroeconomic stuff? Are they related to the big layoffs we're seeing in tech or are they not? She has some good links around that. Like how should you, if you work in publishing and you're seeing like everybody at Apple, not Apple, everybody at everywhere, but Apple get laid off. Is that an omen for what's going to happen in publishing? Is publishing only an omen for itself? How do we understand like the layoffs that, the layoffs and the resignations, how are those connected to union activity? What does COVID maybe have to do with it? Um, I thought she just did a really nice job of pulling it all together. So especially maybe if you feel like you've just been hearing bits and pieces, or if you have some sort of uh, like ambient anxiety around the situation, I think Jen grounds it all very nicely. And here's what we know. Here's what we don't know. Here's what it looks like are the relationships between these different variables. And there's no declaration of like, therefore, you don't need to worry about X, Y, or Z. But I think that you can fill in the lines for yourself there, or at least click a bunch of links to a bunch of additional pieces of information mm-hmm. to help you put, to put that together and, and have a more comprehensive way to think about it. I, always, I also always do really like it when Jen does this or when somebody who's in an industry and has a perspective on what's happening to be able to say, like, maybe the sky is not falling. There are a lot of things things going on but like maybe we can dial down concerns in this area let's just try to see the whole picture and and that's what she's trying to do here so definitely worth your five minutes of reading time we'll have a link in the show notes for it we don't generally talk too much about stuff that's appeared directly on the site except when it's except when it's especially poignant or when it's a slow week and this might be a little bit of column a and column b but Mm -hmm. kelly jensen um wrote about the 10-year anniversary of the New York Times having a young adult bestseller list. This is one of those things that happened in the early days of Book Riot that I can't believe is 10 years ago. Just right. putting that out there. That's mostly for you and I to be like, whoa, blow your mind. Um, but I thought some of her points here were pretty interesting. The list keeps changing. Um, data limitations. If you listen to the old annotated we did about the New York Times bestseller list, that's that's fascinating. Um, but a lot of the data the top five or the top 10 lists have been deprecated. You can't really find them. Um, Kelly is not usually one to bold something, but that's one particular thing Mm -hmm. she found. like, you can't really see historically, publicly at least, what these titles were. Um, And I think think she finds that this has been kind of a half-baked kind of proposition is my sense. She doesn't really come out and say this, but I can sense underneath it some frustration with the opacity and then transience of the availability of the lists writ large. Um, Is that what your kind of thoughts were here or what did you see? And you know, the New York times bestseller list is opaque and weird is just a truth. I think (laughs) of life and publishing and Kelly does not quite hang a lantern there, but the data that she pulls together speaks for itself. And that's a a particular strength of Kelly's writing relevant to sort of the mission driven 
things of Book Riot and the kinds of ethical concerns that we have about books and reading that I think most of the folks listening to this show have about books and reading. She does look at the trends of representation of books by people of color and representation of queer books on the bestseller list. And that trajectory is fascinating. In 2012, two books by people of color were featured on the YA bestsellers list. In 2022, 193 were which mm. small and smallish number relative to the total but 100 times <laughs> growth in those 20 years like that's incredible for the first 3 years of it from 2012 2013 and 2014 there were no queer books it starts gradually increasing and then there are 143 queer books on the list in 2022 and like just seeing those numbers also sits alongside the other focus of Kelly's work, which has largely for the last few years been looking at book bans and censorship. And we've shouted mm-hmm. her out on the show and talked about how she's become one of the leading voices, really breaking those stories and looking at it. But the trend in attempted book bans has been about representation of queer identities. Mostly that's the big focus, you know, the like, don't say gay, all of that stuff. Let's not have books on the library shelves for kids where they might be exposed to the existence of queer people. And If you are somebody who's on that side of things and you go from zero queer books on a list in 2012 to 143 queer books on a list in 2022, that kind of increase probably does look really scary. And just the bigger availability, the broader availability of these titles and that they're being celebrated and surfaced on something like the New York Times bestseller list really does indicate mainstreaming in a way that I think is really powerful. These are not like niche interests. These are not like niche, you know, fringe identities. Mm -hmm. These people who live queer lives are part of our communities. They are part of mainstream America. And that is just true. And being able to see the trends like this really helps me understand, you know, sort of what the folks who are scared of this stuff are looking at that makes them so scared. And it's a it's a powerful trajectory. I think we're only going to see it go up with greater representation and publishing like like the queer books one really jumps from 2017, where there's four queer books mm-hmm. that make the list to 2018, where there's 35 queer books that make the list. And you can kind of think your way back to like, OK, that means in like late 2015, early 2016, publishers really started focusing on acquiring queer books. Yeah. Because then there are more of them available to start uh, popping through. And it will be fascinating to just continue watching how that happens. This was just a ton of data also to pull through, especially because it's hard to get all of it, um, given the opacity of the list. So just excellent work for Kelly there, finding all of it and sifting through everything. And it's so hard to know, um, I guess, as a, I don't know, a little bit of countercurrent to us bemoaning the best-selling books of 2022 that we did on an episode a few weeks mm. ago where was it was Michelle Obama and a bunch of white people yeah to, to a first approximation those were the lists um, this suggests at least in the YA book world and I don't think there were any YA titles on those lists maybe Verity I think technically by Colleen Hoover is YA but that's I, I'll throw that data point out for Colleen Hoover reasons right it's just it's not people were reading that because it was YA they're reading because it was Colleen Hoover um that down into these genre segment, this genre segment, YA, there is a rising floor, right? There's more, there's more books appearing towards the top of the best-selling mm-hmm. list for these categories in their categories. Now, 
they're going to sell a hundred times less than the fifth best-selling book of the year, something like this. Um, but this just suggests that there are more books being bought by underrepresented people than there have ever been before. I'd be curious if there's this is does this lag or does this keep pace with the total number of books in these categories mm. by queer or people of color, right? I would guess that they're still probably underselling title by title. I mean, for lack of a better term, a cishet white person's book. Sure. I would guess that. I would guess that. But publishing has made more books available, and some people are at least buying those books more frequently than they were before. Hard to see how that's not good. Still work to do. Um, I think at the top of the list, and I think this is a lot of the thing that's interesting to think about with YA, is like people reading these books. You know, I've been wary of the, I guess you call it the Harry Potter um conjecture if you you know all the kids who read harry potter are going to turn to book readers mm. haven't really turned out to be the case or at least not differently than people who read tolkien or judy bloom or someone mm-hmm. else earlier were the will the people who read these queer books or books by people of color that wouldn't have read them like when you and i were kids right will they turn out to have a different kind of sensibility that then starts to lift the top of the adult yeah, books um chart as they get into their 30s and 40s an unanswerable question but i think there's it's certainly possible, if not probable, that that's a story we might continue to see. Yeah, I think that's a great question and an arc that I hope to see. You know, a lot of the studies that got, have got passed around in the last couple of years that were like reading fiction builds empathy um, have been <laughs> debunked, and you can quickly Google yeah. your way to, to those debunkings. But there is some real value to what social psychologists call the mere exposure effect, like just knowing someone who's a member of a different group, whatever kinds of groups you want to think about, makes you more comfortable and more likely to like members of that group. And I think that that's something that fiction especially can hinge on or can impact our worldviews. There's also just a normalization here that if you were a teenager in, uh, let's say, 2017, when 165 diverse books and a bunch of queer books hit these lists, you're just more likely to run into it and to not be surprised that there are people of color in your entertainment, that there are gay people and queer people and trans people Mm. showing up in your entertainment. It's just the way that you see the world. And I do think that kind of worldview carries forward. That's just it's also just such a valuable segment of consumers that yes. I hope I hope publishing is looking at this going like, OK, all those people that were reading YA eight years ago are, you know, like coming out of college now mm. or and starting to hit their own like, you know, entering major earning potential and major spending potential. What do they want? <laughs> And and if the if the trends that we've seen in TV and movies are any indication, it will be increasingly diverse and representative of what the world looks like, increasingly progressive. Like Gen Z does not seem to be letting up on that as they come out of college no. and hit adulthood. That old trope that like the older you get, the more conservative you become. I don't think is I, it's not holding true for like we elder millennials, and I really don't think it's going to hold true for Gen Z. Yeah, check out the full, there's other data pieces there, especially if you're interested in why especially, um, it's worth taking a look yeah. at. So find the link in the show notes, bookriot.com slash listen. Let's do another break, a sponsor break, and then uh, talk about some recent reading. Okay, you, you teased with some productivity, Rebecca, so you have to follow <laughs> yeah, through on that. I will. I Chekhov's have a one, checklist. two, 
Chekhov's checklist. I have kind of a one-two punch of things that I would mm. never have guessed go together, but they do go together. Mm. And the the first one is Rick Rubin's The Creative Act. Uh, okay, tell me about it. <laughs> Was I right? I, you were right. I texted another friend who's reading it. And so it's first of all, it's interesting to me that like a bunch of people in my life that I wouldn't necessarily have guessed, starting <laughs> with you, are reading this Rick Rubin book. And I texted them when I was about 50 pages in like, all right, Rick Rubin has done a lot of meditation and a not small amount of psychedelics, like is what I yeah. have learned from this. I really appreciate the ethos of it. Like there is some new agey language there's some stuff that i recognize from like having bumped into like edges of like the yoga and meditation Mm -hmm. world where people say things like connect to source or sources capital s and to my knowledge that doesn't trace back to like any of the classical spiritual traditions it's something new somebody came up with that people say yeah Um, and i instantly start rubbing my forehead i'm doing it right now you can't see it but i'm just like okay all right that's a that is a bridge too far for me as well, but that he's really trying to get to like an ethos that creativity isn't magic or that it's only for some people, but it's a fundamental part of what being human is and that you can be, you know, a record producer or a musician or an artist, but also you are the creator of your life. And that if you think about all of the choices that we make in life, have being able to be, you know, open-minded, tap into a variety of kinds of inspiration. All I really liked all of that stuff. Um, I do think you have to take the first hundred pages with like, maybe not a grain of salt, but exactly that, like, just let it roll over you. And some of it will make sense. And some of it Mm. will not. But when he started getting into like the practices of creativity, like, I I have a bunch of quotes that I had highlighted, like dedication to the practice of showing up on a regular basis is the main requirement for inspiration. Um, And then there was one, right, ass in chair. This is my favorite so far. Discipline is not a lack of freedom. It is a harmonious relationship with time. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to, I feel this deeply in my soul. I'm going to like tattoo this on my forehead. Mm-hmm. And and I think he he really does. Like that's where it starts to show. This is a person who has spent decades and decades watching people make things, helping yes. people make things, thinking about the best ways to get to making the best thing. And it goes to something that, I've heard phrased in other avenues, other venues as like that, that motivation is not the question. It doesn't matter if you're motivated that day or like in the mood to write the song that like the discipline of showing up and working on the thing is the means and the end <laughs> often like that. It doesn't matter kind of what the thing is that you make that day, but that you showed up and you worked, you tried, you thought you, you know, noodled on your song, whatever it is that action changes you and then ultimately you do also make something Mm. um how he encourages us to think about like that success exists independent of like market forces or outside people's judgments you have to decide what success is for your creative act like i I think it's a it's a philosophy of creativity that happens to have some tips for Mm -hmm. stuff you can do if you want to fiddle around with your creative process and when you talked about it a couple weeks ago you mentioned some of those tips that he recommends so i don't need to like retrod that ground i'm really glad i'm reading it i'm gonna i bought it in hardcover and i'm gonna you know i'm underlining i'm think it's gonna have a spot on my shelf it's just a it's a vibe this the book is a vibe yes <laughs> like it's not the artist's way it's not going to tell you what to do every day but if you need 
someone to be like, no, really, you just have to be disciplined. You just have to show up and work on something. And if you're stuck, here are some ways to get into that work. But just showing up is like 90% of it. And then also you can wrap it in some like sort of pseudo spiritual stuff if you want to. It works Mm -hmm. for me, I think. Um, I'm I'm coming around. I feel like maybe his editors didn't do him the biggest favor by letting that those first hundred pages be quite as expansive and and woo woo as they are yeah. because it it's there's a real tone shift when he gets into the more practical yep. stuff. And if That's that right. happened That's earlier, great. great point. Yeah, if that happened earlier in the book, I think it would hook more people. It's really rare that I read something where I feel totally fine being like, you really do just have to hang through the first hundred pages and then it gets practical. You know, like you just got to watch the first three seasons. <laughs> Yeah. But it's, or I think interleave it's really the more generally, I don't know, I don't even know what to say, metacognition stuff with yeah. the more, it's not even that specific advice, but more directive, kind of like try this, mm-hmm. have you considered X kind of strategy. I think that would have, you know, sometimes interweaving theory and practice yes. can be a nice way of illuminating both and grounding grounding the theory but also elevating the practice to say how it connects to some larger condition um can be can be quite useful i think it's i think a lot of people it's also a beautiful object Mm -hmm, so i think a lot of people are going to buy it because it's so beautiful and put it on their table um it's not a pocket reference right it's not one of these kinds of things you're going to carry around (laughs) in your laptop bag as you're typing away at starbucks um but it is a fascinating document it's also part of what i find to be a helpful trajectory in like self-help and business books is that at least for me the idea that as many things as we do in our life like if you can think about it as habit or think about it as practice Mm -hmm. rather than like I don't know checking stuff off a list or whatever this is just a practice that I have I'm going to do this every day or I'm going to do this three times a week and that doing the thing itself is the practice but also just practicing is the practice is one of those sort of life frameworks that you can apply to just about anything. You can apply it to relationships. You can apply it to volunteering. You can apply it to things you do at work. You can apply it to like diet and exercise and things that you want to do in your personal life. And I appreciate like more and more people starting to write about that of like conceptualize this as a practice, not as a linear like A to B. We're trying to get to a destination, but we're just going to practice. The practice itself will change us. Who knows where we're going to go? I really do appreciate his uncertain, like that he just embraces the uncertainty. There's a lot of like showing up and writing the song that day matters. Try it a different way, not because it'll be better, but because it'll be different and you'll learn something. And like, that's right up my alley. Like, sure, let's just see what happens. And there's, I think he really embraces that a lot. And so it's an, it was a really interesting side-by-side read with the Tiago Forte (laughs) building a second brain. (laughs) Because that's so much more is, concrete. Is, I, tell me about that. I I I can't quite connect them in my brain, but I can kind of feel it. I mean, yeah, obviously yeah, they're connected, but like, what are the tendrils specifically? Right. So, building a second brain is about getting all of the. It's I think very much a cousin of the David Allen. Your brain is a horrible yes. place to store things. It's it's your brain is for having ideas, not holding ideas. And Forte really has built a big framework for like how do you find a just a good like note-taking app 
find some easy, low friction digital solution that works for you. It doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be fancy. And develop the practice of capturing your ideas, capturing quotes from things or from podcasts you listen to or images you like or whatever. Whatever it is that like fires you up and inspires you and might be relevant to your work or to the problems you're solving. Just capture, 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 capture and have a way to classify them so that you can find them easily when you need them. And like one of the things in my life for this is I've read a billion management books and they all have underlines in them and I've got notes on them in like 50 places. So what if I had all those notes in an easier place that the next time I'm talking to somebody who reports to me who has whatever issue going on, what if I could more easily have at my fingertips I read a book that talked about that. This was the tip they gave. How does that work for you? Or I'm coming up against something. Oh, man, that came up in some management book I read. Like, what was it that they said to do? Um, so just the like practice noticing your ideas, capturing the stuff, develop the habits. And I was like, wow, these are these two men in a conversation with each other is a thing that would be fascinating. <laughs> but they're speaking really diff- they're speaking very different languages. But I think it's both are tool sets that are useful if you do any kind of knowledge work or any kind of creative work because having the ideas to do the creative stuff does hinge on paying attention to stuff that's out in the world capturing it like having enough fodder that your brain can make connections between things unexpectedly which is where creativity comes from and Tiago Forte gives you a system or a way to build your own system for doing that and I I like that it is flexible I like that it's find what works for you don't look for the perfect app like he definitely knows that everyone starts January 1st of the year thinking if I just bought the perfect notebook my life would be different and I would be a different person he's like you don't need to change your app every year just like commit to Evernote and call it a day (laughs) yeah you know, listening to you talk, it, it occurs to me that so much of both of what them are kind of getting at is that doing creative work isn't about any particular presence of a thing, but the absence mm-hmm. of obstacle. Right? Mm-hmm. So one yeah. thing is getting rid of the things that prevents you from not just having your butt in the chair, but then using the time with your butt in the chair to its highest potential. And in the, in the case of um, having a good system for us, this is how our work tends to go. We have a bunch of information or knowledge or experience um, that we've captured and stored, but then making that stored stuff accessible and yes. fruitful is hard. It's very hard. It's like having a closet full of clothes. Well, unless it's organized well, you was like, I forgot I even had this shirt. I forgot. When was the last time? I didn't. Oh, this is where that was. So really what becomes your wardrobe is just the things you can see when you open the door, right? Or open the, or open the dresser. The idea being if you can label, if you can find, if you can search, that's not a presence of things. That's an absence of barrier to finding the right thing at the right time, making those things available to you. So when the time comes that it's useful to you, whether that's an idea or a reference or a data point, that you can find it and reference it. And with with Ruben, a lot of it is just letting go of so much crap, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. letting go of judgment, letting go of a fixed idea of what the thing is or an endpoint or someone else's judgment or an idea of success is like, just make the thing (laughs) that you want to make and that speaks to you and then it is what it's going to be. But so much gets in the way of both of those things that... 
then then what's then doubly frustrating, I guess, to the buying the new notebook mentality is that's thinking that bringing in something else without a system, without a habit, without an intentionality, mm-hmm. it's just a blank sheet of paper. Well, a blank sheet of paper, you still have all those same obstacles you had before you got that new notebook. You haven't yeah. done really anything. Maybe some, in, unless you have some sort of intentionality or habit around it, it's going to have three pages because you're inspired and you've got a cup of coffee and the day was nice. And you're kind of riding on the high of, I guess, the riding on a high of wanting to be different. That lasts you four days, generally, in my experience. That lasts you about four days mm-hmm. until you need some other superstructure to help yeah. you. Fascinating pairing. It is. It, it's, there's a real, to the Reuben, there's a real, like, free your mind and the rest will follow kind of vibe. And yeah. Forte is telling you how to free your mind really yeah. like the, and it kind of it reminded mm-hmm. me of our conversation last week about genre like if you build the framework and you have all those structures that's actually liberating and so the tiago yeah. forte is build the structure yeah. and then rick rubin is like all right once you can let your mind run wild and do things here's what we do with that i i don't know that I could I could not have planned to read them together. I never would have been like, yes, these two books make sense to read at the same time. But I was reading Rick Rubin right now because it looked interesting. And you had talked about it. I'm reading the Tiago Forte with a coworker who's also working on idea capture mm. stuff. And it was just one of those like nice book serendipity moments of like, huh, these go together. <laughs> you also teased uh, last see. week you had read something that you were going to talk about in Front List Foyer. I was going to follow up about that. Did I? You said you were whelmed by something. Uh, I don't want to talk about that. I got okay, stuff that's fine. more interesting than being great. Whelmed. I did the first 50 pages of Victory City. I'm very <laughs> interested. I'll Love report it. back when I'm done. So there's that. I read um, in my various stages of either caretaking or being cared for The Terraformers by Annalie Newitz, her new book mm-hmm. that came out a couple weeks ago. I really liked it. Though I have to say it's on the edge of my ability to hang with pretty <laughs> intense sci-fi. Okay. It's set 50,000 years in the future on this planet that's being terraformed by a company so that humans that live somewhere else can have their avatars hang out there. The people taking care, the people, um, Nowitz uses the term people to refer to human-like beings, but also sentient moose mounts that are part of this caretaking community. It's very interesting, but I did find myself saying, this is the, I'm, I'm at the edge of my capability to, to hang with this. Some of it is her imagination and world building is so intense that I have a hard time keeping track of who was who, what was supposed mm-hmm. to be looking like. Was this, the, was this the plural identity drone that can text me directly to my mind? Or was this the lava riding bullet car that has a bit of an attitude? You hear what I'm saying here? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it is very mind expanding. I definitely didn't need to be on any substance stronger than Gatorade um, to handle it um, because anything else I really would have been at sea. But I did. I do like reading at the edge of my own comfort, and I think this was at the edge. I don't know how much farther I really want to go there. If it had been very stylistically difficult or something else like that, I, I would find it really hard. But she picked challenging um, on the other side of the familiar world building which is cool. That's that's I'm into it. But a little any farther and I would have been um drowning a little bit, but I really like that too. 
Uh, let's see. Oh, and I listened to Alana Reagan's Fieldwork this week. There was, you know, one thing that's good is to listen to something oh, if yeah. you're, uh, you know, uh, supine. Um, interesting book. What a fast. Did you have you read this? I know you, I you said it was yet, out. No, you, I really liked Burn the Place. I did too. Do you know what Fieldwork is about at all? I mean, the listener probably to do doesn't. With, so I'll pretend. Is it mushrooms? Something to do with mushrooms? Well, so she basically reached the the zenith of the Michelin starred restaurant world and decided, and eh, not for me. Mm. Um, and she and her partner bought a piece of property, I think, if I remember correctly, in upstate Michigan, on the Upper Peninsula in upstate Michigan, and. It's like a little cabin with five rooms, and there's maybe a hut or a year you can also rent. And you come for the weekend, and it's like a B and B with a Michelin star um, chef for the weekend, and she'll cook for you. You can go hiking, and then she has the rest of the time, and they're kind of out there on their own. She's really gone to like I don't even know what the equivalent of this would have been um, necessarily, but she's rethinking her own life, her relationship with her food, the relationship with her family. COVID strikes, so they're in the middle of that. Mm. So a lot of it is about the foraging and like what she can find and what she do with it. A lot of it is trying to take account of her own family life, um, what she wants, what she doesn't want, um, some issues with fertility and kind of understanding family and coupling. So it's hard to say what it was really about. I mean, there's definitely mushroom talk. I was expecting a lot more to be like a foraging memoir, but it's very much a midlife crisis book i think interesting it's the most understated midlife crisis book i can imagine reading (laughs) or not understated but like differently stated her version of buying a corvette was to buy a cabin and to cook um fiddleheads for people three days a week oh man that's relatable if i'm gonna have a midlife crisis it's gonna be like shinsky's (laughs) in a cabin in the woods somewhere (laughs) yeah cooking fiddleheads yeah yeah what can we make out of these roots I'm um, I'm looking at it now, and yeah, it's a mushroom on the cover, and it is subtitled "A Forager's Memoir." So that's interesting to ask, like foraging for what meaning? I I think that's not the worst. Foraging is metaphors, like trying to find what's around and living sustainably and mindfully with it. Um, she's also, you know, a writer, right? She's mm-hmm. taking MFA. Her first book was very good, so the, the writerliness part of it's pretty interesting. Um, but if you're expecting a narrative, I'd look elsewhere. Um, if you're looking at introspection, rumination that has some stuff about rabbits and herbs, <laughs> go. Go with God. I liked it. I'm glad I listened to it. I mean, what else to yeah, say? I'm, I'm finding this pitch very compelling, so I will be listening I, to I, that. I, if it's the right, you know, it's kind of a mushroom-like pitch. It's not, it's, it's not going to set your hair on fire necessarily, <laughs> but it's subtly and earthy. Um, Got it. And you can feel good about yourself. Love it. That sounds delightful. So those are my two picks. Let's call that a show. If you want to find the links to the stories we talked about today, bookriot.com slash listen. You can shoot us an email, podcast at bookriot.com. Links to TBR, uh, the jobs we're looking for. Also going to put a link into the Book Riot podcast Patreon because in about five minutes, Rebecca and I are going to record next week's episode. And we're doing... Love stories, question mark? I may have gone off script a little bit. We're going to see. Um, I just remembered that the one time I guessed it on Book Rages, I talked about a book I'm going to talk about in 20 minutes. How's that Ooh, for wrapping it great. all up? Um, and uh, you can find it there. We recently did White Noise. Uh, we've got some other stuff coming up. Looking forward to that. 
Rebecca, thank you as always.